This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On a warm April morning, Henry and I made the drive four hours south of Atlanta to Long Unit State Prison in Ludowisi, Georgia, where Michael Chappell is currently serving out his life sentence. And the first thing I notice is that this place is, it's small, just kind of sits off in a field. You know, there's, there's really nothing around but fields. And then beyond that, pine trees. I've never seen this much razor wire. Uh, probably at a prison this small. I mean, it's a fence probably 12 feet tall, and there's just rounds of razor wire uh, from bottom to top. It's pretty wild, actually, and there are guard lookouts. So uh, Henry and I are going to walk in here, and I'm, I'm about to meet Michael Chapel face-to-face. We stood in the parking lot outside of the relatively small gray-and-white two-story compound. Henry seemed to have the same initial impression that I did. I mean, yeah, I was surprised at the size of the place, but, you know, it, it looks pretty darn secure. It's a prison. You know, it's not as big as I thought it would be, but it's a prison. Uh, on a human level, you, you, hate to, you hate to see anybody in a place like this. This is the first time Henry will see Chapel in person since meeting him as a young man. This is the first time that you this is the first time. have seen Chapel in how long? Since probably 92. Okay. So, wow. So, I mean, this is really... It's, uh, it's kind of a big moment for me to get to shake his hand and meet him. Unfortunately, my media request to interview Mike Chapel had been denied. So I was unable to record our conversation. But Henry and I were allowed to sit with Chapel for two hours. 
We were escorted by an officer through several security gates that opened and closed one at a time. Once entering the main building of the prison, we had our fingerprints scanned, temperatures taken. We checked in our phones and car keys and passed through a metal detector. We were then escorted through yet another metal door into the visitation room, where we sat on small plastic chairs next to a knee-high plastic table and waited for chapel to arrive. The room was full of other inmates who were visiting with their family members and friends, and the whispers echoed in the concrete room. While we waited, we counted three guards and at least five surveillance cameras monitoring our every movement and word. After several minutes, Chapel was escorted into the room. The very first thing I noticed was his size. Though not as muscular as he once was, he's still very tall. I look up to him when I stand to greet him. He's very friendly and as hospitable as he can be given the circumstances, almost like a gracious host would be inviting you into his home. He makes sure we know there are vending machines that we can purchase snacks and drinks from. Overall, he seemed to be in good spirits, though the reality that we were in a prison became more evident when Chapel told us not to mind him continuously looking over his shoulder. He said it's just habit. He's always hyper-aware of his surroundings. Decades in prison will do that to a person, I guess. Over the course of the next two hours, Henry and I got to know Chapel a bit, who I now felt comfortable enough to call Mike. He talked about what he felt were the weakest points in the case against him. He talked about the physical evidence that was used to convict him in court and why he says it's incomprehensible that a jury would find him guilty given the numerous inconsistencies the prosecution presented at trial. Above all, he emphatically denied killing Emma Jean Thompson. We ended our visit with a handshake. Henry opted for a hug. You have this perception that everybody that's in prison belongs there. They've been convicted of, you know, some crime and in some cases heinous crimes. You know, we need prisons to protect us from, from people like that. But knowing what I know and looking at Michael, you know, he, he's the guy that was putting people away and protecting us in society and he doesn't deserve to be here. And so just to see what his life has been like in just some very small way, I mean, quite frankly, almost brought me to tears. One impression I was left with after meeting Mike Chapel in person was that he seemed almost embarrassed to be in prison and disgusted that his name is associated with Emma Jean Thompson's death. He would often purse his lips together tightly and let out long, frustrated sighs while shaking his head from side to side, still seemingly in disbelief after all this time. It made me wonder, if after nearly 30 years in prison, would a guilty man still profess his innocence, as Chapel does? Is there no point where he would just give up the charade? And I think you can feel just the energy of our day has changed. I kind of walked out of there and I, I almost feel like in a trance. And that's, it's such a weird thing because I don't know this guy. And, and I felt, which sounds odd, but I'm sure a lot of people deal with this. I, I felt guilty getting up and walking out. 
I really did. I'm Sean Kipe. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Land of Lies. In the previous episode, Henry pointed out several events occurring on the night of Emma Jean Thompson's murder that he feels are implausible. While eyewitnesses reported that there was a Gwinnett County police cruiser at the Gwinco muffler shop, it was described as the older, boxy-style car with a wide yellow stripe down the side. Gwinnett County police had only one such cruiser that was used as a backup vehicle for the precinct. The cruiser that Chapel drove, however, was newer and had a more rounded body style with a wide blue stripe down the side. Then there are the eyewitnesses. Carl Cowder's description of the police officer he saw walking up to the victim's car doesn't seem to match Chapel's description. And his account of that same officer speeding up and driving alongside of him for 45 seconds doesn't seem physically possible, given the short distance from the crime scene to where the officer was identified. But it was the eyewitness account of a man named Ron Flashner that caught Henry's attention most, that of an older sedan with smoke emanating from it heavily around 10 p.m. that night. Flashner described seeing the car parked trunk to trunk with Emma Jean Thompson's, and through the haze of smoke, Flashner could see the silhouettes of three to four people. That smoking vehicle matched the description of Michael Thompson's 78 Buick, which had a busted head gasket at the time. It was real loud. I, I could hear him coming. Uh, he would come down the road so fast he would almost get airborne. And it just, I'm just like, he's going to wreck one day out here in front of my house. I mean, it, it's just that obvious. I mean, you could hear him coming. Uh, the car was so loud. It's like it was running with uh, no exhaust on it. Yeah. And did it smoke a lot? It smoked. Terry Bagley is a retired fireman who lived in the same neighborhood as the Thompsons in 1993. Yes, um, they lived in an area below where I lived at. We lived off one street. They lived down off, off of, uh, another couple of streets below where I lived. I, but he, they traveled up and down that road a lot. Terry and the Thompsons' homes were 1.7 miles from the muffler shop. Close enough that Terry could hear the gunshots that night. That night, I was getting ready to go to bed. Our, our log cabin, we, we had our washer and dryer was out on the uh, back porch. And it was raining, so I stepped out, and I was getting my clothes out of the dryer and everything, and I was standing out, and, and I just, I heard, and I walked back in. I told my wife, I said, well, somebody got shot. I said, I just heard two gunshots go off close by. You know, I, I just make a making a joke out of it you know because when you hear gunshots late at night like that i just said well just out of my mouth i just said well somebody got shot i heard this gunshot you know through that and didn't think anything about it next morning you know get up and go to work and and then get dispatched out on on the call when terry's firehouse responded to the call the next morning they were unaware that they were being dispatched to the scene of a homicide it, that didn't even dawn on me then um, when we ran the call. 
even what I heard the night prior to that. I mean, it didn't even put together, but then after a little while later, I'm like, I probably heard them gunshots. The scene that when we pulled up to it, we stopped, got out of the engine, I, you know, and we walked up to it, and I, and I noticed this lady uh, in the car was slumped over towards the, uh, the driver's side, seatbelt around her, leaning over and everything, and I'm looking and I'm going, and then we noticed, you know, I said, oh, this, this is not good. This, I mean, she's been, looks like she's been shot. To look at the car and, and, the, and the stuff, you really had to look good. I mean, the way that they described it, blood splatter, I didn't see blood splatter. Um, I don't remember any of that. I guess it all depends on the directory of the way that, the, that it happened. You know, most suicides, yes, you get, you get splatter. I mean, you, you do get more of the blood splatter, you know, the brain matter and stuff that comes out. But uh, I didn't see that. Terry references suicide by gunshot here for comparison, because it's typically done from point-blank range, in the same manner that Emma Jean was killed. The blood spatter should theoretically be similar. So we called in to our dispatch and told them, you know, that we were on the scene of a uh, possible homicide, and um, at least they all came in uh, later on top of that. While we were there and they were doing their investigation and stuff, I, st- I stepped back and let them take charge of the scene. Her son pulls in directly back behind the car. He's out just screaming to the top of his lungs, crying, screaming, is she dead? Is she dead? Is my mama dead? Finally, after everything was over, they released him and said, yes, you can go up there. It wasn't a tear in his eye. I, I'm just like, oh, that's that's just, that's weird, you know? To see that, uh, I've seen a lot of calls and been on a lot of calls, and I've noticed people, you know, their reactions towards things, uh, just crocodile tears pouring off their faces and stuff. He had no tears. In a phone call with Mike Chappell, he told me that in the days immediately after the murder investigation began, he remembers having conversations with some of the other police officers about Michael Thompson's unusual conduct at the crime scene. Oh, yeah, that is, it most definitely was. You know, cops are the worst gossips in the, uh, in the world. There was a lot of locker room uh, talk about it. I remember uh, we had heard about uh, him showing up. I, I remember what, what struck in my mind was he arrived at the scene unsummoned and that to us as police officers that was uh hey what what's up with this and then later on i learned about the uh his main concern was the purse it just all started clicking together there but common agreement amongst all of us was yeah he was involved in some form or fashion just simply from his behavior these were guys who were at the uh, scene like for example the sergeant of the uh, duty sergeant that day him saying something like that. So yeah, we tried and convicted uh, young Thompson on our own right there in in the squad room. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I can imagine if I had come upon that scene and found my mother's car there, I want to know what's occurred. If there's somebody in that car, is it my mother? I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, and, and I want to know what happened. You know, his main concern was the whereabouts of his mother's purse. And so there's a lot that, you know, kind of set bells off in my head and, and made me start thinking, well, wait a minute, there's more, you know, there's more to this story. And this, the more I, dug into and learned about the son, you know, the more questions I have. Michael Thompson was a suspect early on, and by the time of Chapel's arrest, investigators were convinced that he was responsible for stealing the initial $7,000 from his mother, as you can hear in this clip of Lieutenant John Laddie during Chapel's interrogation. Pretty obvious to everybody, Michael's a dirtbag faggot too, okay? I mean, he's a, he's a low-rent dirtbag and faggot. And he was stealing from his mama because his two started work make a living for himself. You knew that. You were smart enough to know that. It didn't take you five seconds to look at that and realize that he had taken that money because no burglar takes half of it. We all know that. Michael and Emma Jean Thompson had an unhealthy relationship at times, according to friends of hers. Emma Jean's closest friend, Dolores Burrell, even stated in a True TV documentary special on the case that she knew Emma Jean didn't trust her own son. She got to the point where she gave me her, her checks and I would keep her checks for her. Because she was so afraid he'd take the ride. She says, I told Michael if something happened to me, if I was sick or something, money was in her home, he could find it if he looked hard enough. And when Jean told me this, I just got goose pimples all over me, just chills came over me. Michael Thompson's alibi the night of the murder was corroborated only by his neighbor and friend, Amy Parker. Parker said in a statement to Gwinnett County Police that Michael Thompson was at her trailer that day up until somewhere between 8 and 8.30 p.m., then left to go to Subway to get something to eat. An hour later, he returned with a Subway cup full of ice and a few brownies. They watched a few minutes of The Simpsons, and he left again to go check on a job. At 10.30 p.m., he returned again, they watched more TV, and he left at 11 p.m. or shortly before to go home. But that story doesn't match the statement Michael Thompson himself gave. Of course, neither one of their stories lined up, and they both demonstrably lied to the police, but she was his alibi witness. Thompson stated that he and his mother had dinner at a Waffle House in nearby Buford at 8 p.m. They both ate steaks and left for home at 8.30. Shortly after, Thompson said he left to speak with another resident in the neighborhood about a job and was at that resident's home from 8.45 to 10 p.m. On his way home, he spoke with Amy Parker for a few minutes before going inside, watching a movie, 
and going to sleep around 11.30 p.m. But how could he be at Amy Parker's and having dinner with his mother at the Waffle House at the same time? Also, he told investigators they both had steaks for dinner that night. But according to the autopsy report Henry and I reviewed, Imogene Thompson had no meat in her stomach whatsoever, only vegetable matter. The resident in the neighborhood, whose home Thompson allegedly spent an hour and 15 minutes at checking on a job, was never questioned to verify this, at least not in any of the documents we were able to find. And there's this. Phone records also show a call around 11 p.m. from the Thompson home to a known drug dealer Michael associated with. Lastly, there was another small clue left at the crime scene. They found the lid and straw of a Subway drink cup behind the passenger seat. Michael Thompson had a Subway cup full of ice, according to a statement given by Amy Parker. And a property sheet shows that a lid and straw from Subway were found at the crime scene inside Emma Jean Thompson's car. Could Ron Flashner's eyewitness account of seeing a vehicle matching Michael Thompson's smoking Buick around 10 p.m. that night, parked trunk to trunk with Emma Jean Thompson's car, explain this? And if that smoking car that Mr. Flashner saw belonged to the victim's son, then what was he doing there at the approximate time of her death? And who were the other two or three people Flashner described seeing? Though extremely compelling, neither lead was significantly pursued by investigators. And why not? Every shovelful is a rabbit hole because everything you learn about this case, every person whose name comes up, there's so much background, there's so much to know about that person, their involvement, and ultimately the involvement in this investigation that, you know, at the end of it, you're just, your mind is blown by how this police department settled on their model officer with all of this other credible information in their hands. Michael Thompson's alibi is confusing. The version he gave police differs from the version Amy Parker gave, with the only common threads being that he went to get something to eat at some point and checked on a job. But even this timeline doesn't match. Thompson and Parker both gave their statements the day after the murder occurred. So why didn't they line up? It would be eight days after the murder until police would have Mike Chappell's alibi. Mike's alibi is really important because most people are alibied. You know, I was at home watching TV with my girlfriend and the girlfriend says, yes, he was at home with me. Or, you know, I was, I, I stopped by the convenience store and bought a Dr. Pepper at, you know, and here's the receipt where I bought the Dr. Pepper at, you know, 8.45. You know, so that person's alibied. Imagine if you're a police officer and you are at the county's firehouse with six firemen, all who have distinguished careers and nothing in their background that would indicate that they were anything other than honorable and honest men. You're at the firehouse with your sergeant, your immediate supervisor, your watch partner. You've got nine first responders that can verify your whereabouts. During Chapel's investigation by veteran Gwinnett County detectives John Laddie and Jack Burnett, Chapel maintains that he was at Firehouse 14 
roughly a 15-minute drive away from the crime scene, from approximately 8.30 p.m. until he received a dispatch call at 9.56 p.m. Chapel and fellow officers Brian Reddy and Sergeant D.E. Stone hung out at the firehouse tracking storm updates on local news stations because there was a tornado warning in effect that night. On the 15th, we sit there and cut us. So I picked on this piece of there because you couldn't tell what color, what shape, or any county you were in. The outline went up. So he had told me to get up and put his finger on the, on the map. This is not, it's not your local crackheads, some, you know, kids playing basketball that might have seen somebody. These are, you know, six of Gwinnett County's finest first responders who all have absolutely credible reputations saying, hey, this guy was at the firehouse from 8.30 to 10 o'clock. Mike pleaded with Jack Burnett and said, man, talk to the firemen. They'll tell you, that's where I was. That's who I was with. That's what I did. I was at the firehouse. Talk to the firemen. And Jack Burnett said, you can take that to the bank, Mike. We're going to talk to them. We're going to continue the investigation. We're going to talk to your alibi witnesses. You can take that to the bank. Do you know when Jack Burnett talked to the firemen? Never. Do you know when GCPD interviewed the firemen as to the investigation regarding the murder of Imogene Thompson? Never. Laddie and Burnett not interviewing the six firemen or their captain to corroborate Chapel's alibi seems puzzling. Chapel was a highly regarded member of the force, now being accused of murder. So wouldn't they exhaust all opportunities to clear his name? I left there. I was there. The firemen will tell you that. We're going to go up there and talk to all those firemen. We're confident that they're going to, they're going to tell us you were there. Pretty much the same story you've told us. But they're also going to have a pretty good idea when you left. Three days after Mike's arrest, when the Gwinnett County Police had not come and taken their statements, they complained to their captain, hey, why is Gwinnett County not coming to find out where Mike was? We know where Mike was. Mike couldn't have been over there at the muffler shop because he was here. And the captain said, you know what, y'all better write your statements out and give them to me. All six of those firemen wrote their statements. All but one of them said that he was there from 8.30 to 10 o'clock. The other one said he wasn't sure what time it was, but it was that evening. And they turned him into their fire captain. The men at Firehouse 14 were not the only witnesses to not be questioned or asked to give statements by Laddie and Burnett, as Terry Bagley, the first fireman to respond to the crime scene, tells me. I would have thought I would have been in that trial deep, deep. You know, with, the, with, with me running a call. What did you see? You know, how did you approach the scene? Was there anything tampered at the scene when you got, you know, I never got questioned. Never. Uh, it's just like it happened. It happened quickly and it was over with. The crux of Henry's argument concerning the firehouse, though, lies in a piece of evidence that's hard to ignore. It involves the dispatch call he says Chapel took in the fire station at 9.56 p.m., making it impossible for Chapel to have been at the scene of the murder. So imagine you're there and you've got nine first responders 
that can verify your whereabouts. And not only that, you receive radio traffic from the dispatch office, from the county's dispatch office, that is chronologically recorded. And they, they cue you, you cue your mic back, you respond to them at 9.56 p.m. They know for a fact that you're talking to dispatch at 9.56 p.m. Now imagine if when you cue that mic, you're standing 14 inches underneath the firehouse's speaker that is also squawking the fire traffic incessantly. So the background noise that your microphone is going to pick up for the chronologically recorded police dispatch has the firehouse traffic in the background. And you know exactly what time it is, 9.56. Could a person who is suspected of committing a crime at around 10 o'clock, 15 minutes away, have possibly been considered to be at that scene if at 9.56 you know exactly where they're at because you have nine witnesses in the chronologically recorded police dispatch to say, this is where I was at that particular time. This is David Pierce, and I joined the fire department in 1981. I moved to Station 14 in Buford in 88. Retired fireman David Pierce was on duty at Firehouse 14 on the night of Imogene Thompson's murder. We were all sitting around watching a movie on one of the channels. It was a suspenseful movie about a bad cop. I never been behind my camera. I don't see danger. It's part of your parole, you to do community service. Something about using your talents to take pretty pictures for the department to use in public relations. David Pierce and several other firemen, along with officers Chapel, Reddy, and Stone, were watching the B-movie thriller A Time to Die in which a photographer vixen tries to oust a killer cop. This movie would actually become critical to Chapel's alibi. He claimed he watched the end of the movie, got a dispatch call at 9.56 p.m., then left the firehouse. Prosecutors claimed the movie ended at 9.30 p.m., Chapel left, receiving the dispatch call just after killing Emma Jean Thompson. One issue that would later arise was that the men all said they were watching a movie in which weather updates were scrolling across the bottom of the screen, and during commercials, they would switch to local news for detailed weather coverage. Active tornado watches and tornado warnings. But on April 15th, A Time to Die was aired on a premium cable channel, like HBO or Showtime, and had no commercial breaks. That week's TV guide was actually used in court to determine what they likely watched, as none of the men could really remember. After all, they didn't testify at trial until two and a half years later. But David Pierce was there, and though the movie they watched might be in question, he certainly remembers what happened. And then as the movie ended, I remember Mike standing by the side door. His radio went off. 
he answered. I didn't hear, you know, what it was. I remember him putting his raincoat on and walking out the door. The other two guys stayed there. David says he was sure it was just a minute or two before 10 p.m. that Chapel walked out of the firehouse. Well, writing the times down is what, you know, got me subpoenaed because I went to bed at 10 o'clock that night and I never do. How long after he walked out the door would you say you went to bed? Immediately. That's why I remember it so well. When we had to document everything, time was very critical. It always has been, always was. You know, that's why we called the radio room to get our times when we were dispatched, when we arrived, when we went code four, when every time, time was everything. I wouldn't have written that down if I didn't look at, we had a clock right there over the coffee pot. 10 o'clock, I walked by it, and he had just left. David also tells me he felt pressured to go along with the narrative investigators were using to paint Chapel into a corner. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I uh, felt like I was getting interrogated myself because of what I wrote down. They were trying to say, well, if the movie ended, was there 15 minutes of credits? I have no idea. So what you're saying is you don't know if it went off at 10 till 10 and it had 10 minutes of credit. And I said, I can't say that. I can't say that. I'm telling you, he walked out the door, the movie was over, and I went to bed at 10 o'clock. There were two other officers at the firehouse that night, Brian Reddy and Sergeant Stone, who they called Rooster. They were friends of Chapel's. Surely, they would back up his claim that he was there when the murder occurred. Early in the interrogation, John Laddie basically called Michael Lyre and said, you weren't at the firehouse. We've already talked to Brian Reddy. And why would your friend who would take a bullet for you say that you weren't there if you were there? Well, about halfway through the interrogation, after they had told Mike he was lying over and over again because Brian Reddy said that he didn't go to the firehouse, that it was only Brian Reddy and Sergeant Stone, John Laddie had gone out of the room and came back in and said, well, Mike, looks like you were right. Reddy was mistaken. He said you did go to the firehouse with him, but you left at 930. So they just shifted their whole timeline. And now instead of laying in wait from 845 to 930, he was only there from 930 to 10 o'clock. But they said, you know, you still did it. Well, Mike, it appears that Reddy was mistaken. You were at the firehouse. However, you left the firehouse. So your statement about being at the firehouse is, is right. But you left. I bet I left. You left in plenty of time to go over there. And kill the woman. Exactly. What's funny is the reason Brian Reddy changed his story is because Sergeant Stone that night was also uh, interviewed by Captain Davis. And he told Captain Davis, yeah, Mike left at around 10 o'clock. I left about 20 minutes after Mike to go and call my wife 
So I went next door to the precinct 20 minutes later and called my wife. That call to his home occurred from the precinct at 10.17, 21 minutes after the dispatch call that Mike took, he says, standing inside the firehouse. Having watched the full videotaped interrogation myself, it does seem strange to me that after repeatedly telling Chapel that he was lying about the firehouse, Laddie steps out of the room to speak with Reddy. Moments later, he re-enters and, as Henry described, tells Chapel that Reddy admitted he was mistaken, now saying he was there, but he left at 9.30, which would have given Chapel ample time to commit the murder. It feels forced and convenient. The whole interview feels like Laddie and Burnett might be trying a little too hard to make this all fit together. I consulted with a linguistics expert and shared the interrogation audio with him. My name is Bill Weston. I'm 26 years in law enforcement, mostly a criminal investigator. During that time, I studied language and forensic linguistics. The use of language, what to look for when you're interviewing people, what language indicates a change in perspective, what I call sensitivity. I've left law enforcement. I work in the private sector now. I travel the country interviewing people at the point in which a case gets raised to the level of pretty strong evidence of fraud. They call me in. To an investigator, let alone the average person, deception can be incredibly hard to detect. While there are visual cues like body language, fidgeting, rapid blinking, Bill Weston finds that detecting deception is more about not only what is being said, but how it's said. He reviewed the full three-and-a-half-hour interrogation of Mike Chappell. Weston had no prior knowledge of who Chappell was or what he'd been involved with. I can tell you my first impression was, if these investigators, especially Laddie, worked for me, I'd be highly embarrassed. I would be... It was probably ranks up there with some of the worst interviewing, if if you would even call it that, um, that I've ever that I've ever seen from the law enforcement perspective. I already talked to the officers. We have the information they've given, even though Reddy forgot, got confused, got scared. I don't know. I don't want to put any kind of blame on Reddy. Yeah, I mean, it was clear, maybe not quite from the beginning, but quickly into it, that this this was not an interview to obtain information. The whole interview, or if you'd call it that, was a job to support their affirmation bias, I believe. They had, a, they had a direction, they had a point of view. Their job was to affirm that in some way, shape, or form. When Chapel was trying to say certain things, I mean, he, they'd cut him off, right, when they were talking. It was just, there were so many opportunities that were missed. I can't even begin. I also shared with Bill a typed transcript of the interview. There was 138 pages. Over 70 pages was Laddie running on where Chapel could only say, uh-huh, yup, exactly. Uh-huh. Bill then posed a question that Henry and I have both asked repeatedly. What in the world is Gwinnett County PD doing work in this case at this point? That's my first takeaway. Why are two Gwinnett County investigators interviewing a suspect, a law enforcement suspect, not only a law enforcement suspect, but a law enforcement suspect in their own department that they, they suspect obviously very strongly that he may have committed a crime. 
from a lot of years in law enforcement, the minute something becomes a, we think a cop's involved, whether it's our department or even a neighboring county or city or whatever, we're done with the case. That's it. We call the GBI in. End of story. You just don't do that. We didn't even work our own accidents if an officer was involved. We called the state patrol. We don't want anybody looking at it going, you know, this guy doesn't like this guy or this guy, you know, is best friends with this guy. And, and as it goes on, obviously, one of these guys is a really close friend. I mean, deer hunts together, has family meals together, knows the parents. Um, that's, I, I just couldn't wrap my brain around that. You know, that was probably one of my first biggest questions. My second question is, do we have a Garrity issue here? Bill's referring to Garrity versus New Jersey a 1967 case in which a group of police officers were investigated for allegedly fixing traffic tickets. The lawsuit revealed that Garrity was told he didn't have to answer questions that might incriminate him in the case, but if he didn't, he would be fired, violating his 14th Amendment rights. So the question is, did Chapel provide coerced statements to Laddie and Burnett in fear of losing his job? Believing that they would check out his alibi at Firehouse 14 as promised, and he would be cleared. I would I would have been embarrassed to be in that situation when I already knew where he was roughly and I had witnesses and yet I'm sitting there going I don't know what fire shift was on. I don't know. I don't know what oh my gosh, I would have we're talking about a murder and and one of my officers is being accused of it. The chief of the fire department would be awake in my department and given me the information I need for every single fireman, we'd be at their house that night interviewing before they had a chance to talk to anybody else. And I'd get unbiased, clean statements. Bill then focused his attention on Chapel's statements concerning the firehouse and his movements that night. A good investigator would have quickly caught on to the experiential memory part of this or the sensory memory. It's, you know, visual audible smell sight when i was listening to this and they they were trying to corner chapel especially when, when they were asking him about his night and he was talking about meeting up with his sergeant and the other officer and then going to the firehouse when i listened to that part i was he was describing it even though it was brief at first very uh using very experiential memory words he was he talked about it was almost dark it it, it had to be you know those kind of words are you're pulling that from real memory going to the fire station watching the weather the, just the way he described it I, I i immediately marked that as most likely accurate but on 15th i said phone chair 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 here and we sit there and cut so i picked on these people there because you couldn't tell what color what shape on any county you the outline was going there Ask him how come he can't tell which color Gwinnett County is in the warning symbol. In the warning symbol that. that conversation took place inside that fire department when they were doing the warning. As soon as you check with that shift, they'll tell you that was exciting. Me and Ray, we entertained them when we go in there. That's all I know. You know, we spoke, we had conversation, we talked, we laughed. You heard him say boop, 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 describing the sound on the TV, saying color, he touched the screen. Remember he said, I told him to go up and touch the screen where he couldn't identify Gwinnett County, go up and touch the screen. I sat phone, chair, chair, chair. That is somebody that was there 
that is somebody that that really happened to when you're an investigator and that happens whatever you have that may contradict that you need to shut up and listen because whatever you have is inaccurate people don't they don't make stories up like that they don't they don't it's too it's too detailed it's too much in order it's you can almost see his mind remembering that incident he was there experiential memory is hard to fake because it's tied to your senses it would be like you describing in accurate detail what it's like to walk on the moon for you also look for firm language people that tend to want to convince people they run on with statements chapel used some very strong lieutenant i was not there he didn't run on afterward he didn't need to convince he felt comfortable about that statement i was not there i did not kill that woman again do i know that that's true do i know he wasn't lying no but when people try to deceive they're not comfortable lying bill was concerned by one part of chapel's story after receiving the non-emergency dispatch call at 9:56 p.m Chapel says he left the firehouse and stopped by Ironworld to grab the day's cash and receipts. This could be the window of opportunity to commit the murder. That whole time frame is there's just not a lot of experiential memory. I would expect to hear from my experience. Yeah, I, I did. I swung by the gym. I, you know, I was on the way to call and I was almost at the gym, so I swung by. I remember it because I hopped out and it was still raining and I didn't put my raincoat on and I got wet, you know, stuck my head in. Fred Smith, you know, is still there. He's a key holder and he's on the on the bench press or something, you know. I would expect to hear that. I didn't hear that. That's a concern for me. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball, and you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.